Hi, Sarah. Hi, Alison. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. I'm not quite sure, though, what 2021 is going to bring. COVID is still very much with us, isn't it? And now we've got the first cases of this new strain from the UK that have been identified in France. So I'm definitely making no New Year resolutions. Mm, and some might be happy about that. Um, <laughs> did you take advantage of our of our being deconfined at the during the holidays to to get out of town? Yeah, I did. I managed some some mini trips to Normandy and down in the south to Provence. Small gatherings just with friends, but mm. did slightly exceed the recommended six adults around the table. But shh. Um, what about you? Um, I also took advantage, you know, anticipating perhaps a third lockdown in a few weeks. Mm. Um, We got out of town, went to the coast, but I I did stay within my, my nuclear family. Yeah, a third lockdown is now no longer being ruled out. Um, we have to see what the impact of those Christmas gatherings is going to be on the COVID figures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're already on the rise. Yeah, and restaurants and cafes, we already know, will have to wait a bit longer than their promised January 20th date to reopen. The cultural sector is also still on standby. Um, any hope for, for returning to normality, whatever mm. that is, are arresting on the vaccine. The vaccine. Yeah, this is the key word, isn't it? We had the mask fiasco here in France in the spring when we were told not to wear masks and then to wear them. And then we had this the lack of COVID testing. And now we've got the vaccine cock up. Mm -hmm. Um, President Macron is livid. Yeah, yeah. France has definitely been in the crosshairs um, this week for its slow rollout of its COVID vaccination campaign compared to other European countries. And of course, the opposition here is having a field day with Macron and his government. Yeah, because it is slow, Mm. uh, especially compared to France's neighbours. The UK has been vaccinating like there's no tomorrow, more than a million people so far. Germany, uh, more than half a million. Even Italy, uh, more than 80,000. At the beginning of this week, only 500 vaccinations have been done in France and that earned President Macron the nickname Macron 500. Well, yeah, Macron definitely reacted to that. Um, He said the government had to stop treating the campaign as a family stroll in the park, as he put it. Um, It has to be said that the target, as announced by the prime minister, is to get to a million elderly and vulnerable people vaccinated by the end of the month. Uh, Difficult to do with the start Mm. we've just had. Exactly. It seems very ambitious, doesn't it? The slowness is being blamed partly on cumbersome administration here in France and maybe some poor logistics. But it's especially down to the fact that France decided it wanted to start vaccinating the elderly in care homes. Mm. And that requires what it calls informed consent, which involves firstly a pre-vaccination doctor's visit. All of that has massively slowed down the process. Yeah, for sure. Um, Though there's a certain logic to vaccinating the elderly first. I mean, some 90% of the people who died of COVID in France, 66,000, have been people over the age of 65. Yeah, and a third of those deaths occurred in nursing homes. But what is a bit surprising is that the vaccination campaign hasn't even really kicked off in those homes yet. Yeah, they're still in the pilot phase, as they say. The first proper campaigns will start next week, but we're not even sure how big the take-up rate will be. Yeah, yeah, we've talked about France's vaccine skepticism. I mean, does that extend to the elderly in this situation? It would seem to. Um, Surveys show that a lot of elderly people just don't know what to think about the vaccine. Our colleague Laurence Théo met some people in a nursing home in the west of France. 
I'd like to have it if it doesn't make you sick, says André. They thought the flu jab could make you ill, but in the end it didn't. If it can help protect you from young people, I'm completely in favour, says 84-year-old Elizabeth. We don't know what the side effects might be, says the more wary Josiane. The vaccines come out a bit too fast for my liking. It's surprising that that these people, the most vulnerable to COVID, would resist the chance to to protect themselves. Mm. I mean, especially since they've been pretty much isolated in in these nursing homes since March and cut off from their families and that sort of thing. Yeah, Sarah, I had a similar reaction. So what is going on? Well, I talked to Laurent Levasseur, he's chairman of Blue Linea. That's a company working with a thousand French nursing homes. And the company found that 40% of residents were happy to have the vaccine, while 20% were refusing it, and 40% were still undecided. Mm. Levasseur told me that the opinion of the family GP is particularly crucial for the elderly in all of this. And yet the doctors still haven't been given enough information to make what is known as an informed medical opinion. Mm, Lots of gaps then. Exactly. Everybody is afraid of the side effect. And need to obtain the medical opinion of their family doctor. But that's not very easy to obtain that. And without medical opinion, it's very complicated for this type of person, for the generation of people to express an opinion. Their own opinion. Own opinion, yes. So you mean the relationship between elderly people and their doctor, the human contact, is very, very important. For you, for me, it's very easy to imagine take a meeting with a doctor by one click on the website. For this generation of people, the trust relation is very important. And when it's not possible for this person to express their opinion... Because maybe they're suffering from dementia or just a slightly senile, you mean? Exactly. We have in France, on the nursing home, a system of trust person. That's a daughter, the son... The person they trust, someone who can speak on their behalf. Yeah, it's not the same story. If you take the decision for you or for your father or mother and in 90% of this situation, these trust people would like to obtain the medical opinion of the doctor of your father or mother. Doctors, for the most part, are favourable to the vaccination. So what's the problem? Today, you have a process, administrative process in France before the vaccination. A first meeting with one doctor to obtain the information and to obtain the consent of this person. And a second rendezvous with a nurse to do the vaccination. And uh, why? Why we need to have two meetings? Are you okay? Yes. Okay, vaccination is good. Have a good day. It's so easy to make that, but not in the actual process in France. And what happens inside the nursing home if, let's say, 40% of the elderly have the vaccination? What does it change? Does it mean they can have more visits or that the nursing home is more open? What are the benefits for them? Today, nothing. Nothing. Nothing changes. Nothing changes because if you have only 40% of people with the vaccination, it's dangerous for the 60% of people to meet the virus. And uh, imagine the visit from the family. If the family don't have the vaccination, that's the same story. 
today no benefit for the person to take this decision and uh, that's very interesting to listen to these elderly people the elderly people explain my son is 60 years is not better that my son has a vaccination before me really <laughs> really because if you live in one nursing home after two pandemic crises in march in december okay no i'm here and uh, no, today, I think that it's more dangerous for my son and my daughter, 60 years, 70 years. That's important for this person to obtain the vaccination as soon as possible. Yeah, you would think, that, though, that people would want to protect themselves. But I guess if someone is 90 in an elderly person's home and they're going to die there, yes, I guess it's not very motivating, the idea of having the vaccination. No, but it's not just elderly people that the parents, the parents of the people of 60 or 70 years, but the, the main responsibility of one parent is to take care of your kids. And if your kids are 60 years, that continues as your kids. Laurent, will you have the vaccine? Yes, I would like the vaccine because I would like to see more my father and my mother and to protect my father and mother. Nobody would like to contaminate their parents. And your parents, are they willing to have the vaccine? Uh, yes. My parents trust me. They trust you? <laughs> uh, yes. And, uh, of course, when I talk with my mother, I'm not okay. Are you sure? And after 10 minutes, she okays. You managed to convince her? Yeah. And if I can just make a little comparison with what's happening in Germany, everybody, France <laughs> likes to compare itself to Germany. Germany is going very fast and it's vaccinating the general public. They have vaccination centers. They have mobile teams even going into nursing homes. It's a very different system from France. Do you think that France needs to move towards the German model? So question of culture. Remember, France, that's the country of the Pasteur Institute, and at the same time, French people are very dubious. That's a French paradox. When you see what's happened in UK, in Germany, of course, you have a mathematical and objective approach. If you take a decision, yeah. you do it. In France, you spoke very long time before take your decision. Everything so, takes a long that's time. That's a question of culture. <laughs> so a big cultural divide mm. there. Um, and there's still a bit of convincing to be done, obviously. But it, it doesn't sound like the issue with the elderly over this vaccine is skepticism, actually, but rather that they just don't think that they're a priority. Indeed. And, you know, the skepticism thing can be overrated maybe sometimes. Uh, mm. The French criticize, they like to question everything, especially <laughs> their governments and this government in particular. But in the end, the vast majority do end up getting vaccinated and they do vaccinate their children. Yeah. One, yeah, so one thing which could help maybe in reassuring people about vaccines would be if public figures were seen to be having got the vaccination. You mean like, like the president, the prime minister? Yeah, exactly. Just like Queen Elizabeth did in the UK. Yeah, I guess. Or, or President-elect Joe Biden in the US, who's not exactly young. Elle avait, elle avait, le pondy chéri facile. Elle avait, elle avait, le pondy chéri accueillant aussitôt. 
Alison, when you think India, um, a large part of its history, of course, is connected to Britain, its colonization starting in 1858. I can vouch for the fact that curry remains Britain's most popular <laughs> dish. Yeah. yeah, but France was actually there in India, too, at least in a small part of it, at least until 1962, in a city called Puducherry on the southeastern coast of India. Yeah, we've just been hearing about that, haven't we? That was uh, Juliette Greco singing about uh, Puducherry, or Pondicherry, as I've always known it. Um, it was a hippie outpost, especially in the 1960s, and also famous for its communist ideals, and croissant. Mm. Um, anyway, I could wax lyrical about this, but why are we talking about this remote part of India in our podcast, Spotlight on France? Well, it's, it's the history. We're back in 1761, January 16th, so roundabout now. France lost Pondicherry, as it was known then, to the British for the first time. Oh, I've got divided loyalties on that one, I must admit. Sure, sure. The city had been a French trading center since the late 17th century. The French East India Company set up there in 1673. France actually had five colonies in India. Pondicherry grew to be the main one. And there were fights with the British and the Dutch for dominance there and, I mean, all over the country as mm. well. Um, the Dutch invaded Pondicherry in 1693, returned it to France six years later. Um, and during the Seven Years' War between France and Britain, Pondicherry changed hands several times. And that first one was on January 16, 1761, when the British captured the city after a siege of several months. Pondicherry continued to go back and forth between France and Britain, but it became clear that Britain was was going to dominate the European colonization of India. Even though France did put up a bit of a fight, didn't it? Well, it did hold on to Pondicherry um, through India's independence from Britain, finally transferring the territory to India in 1962. Today, there's a small French community in Puducherry, which retains a bit of a French touch. As you said, croissants, uh, you can find there. Street names are still in French. French is an official language, though it is dwarfed by Tamil, which is the language in southern India. And interestingly, when the city was transferred to India administratively in 1954, residents there, um, Indians, had to choose nationality, Indian or French. And so today, there are many Indians there who have French nationality. They can vote in France because, you know, their grandparents chose hmm. it, but they've never been to France. Rendez-nous la lumière, rendez-nous la beauté Le monde était si beau Et nous l'avons gâché So remember the Citizens' Assembly on Climate? I do. This was a group of randomly selected people who got together to make climate policy. Yeah, that's it. 150 citizens chosen at random, um, tasked with coming up with ideas to reduce France's carbon emissions by 40% by the year 2030. Um, since then, France has actually upped its ambition. We spoke to one of the organizers about a year ago in February mm -hmm. when they were just getting started. And some of our listeners wanted to know what came of all of that. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, the convention met several times in Paris between October 2018 and June of last year. They were debating, they got information from industry leaders, NGOs, and they came up with 149 concrete measures. So remind us, Sarah, what some of those measures are. Well, they're on a range of issues on transportation, housing, development, food, anything that has to do with carbon emissions. Um, for example, there's a recommendation to reduce the VAT tax on train tickets to encourage train travel rather than air travel. Um, there are interesting proposals on providing greenhouse gas emissions information on consumer goods, for example. And all of this is to become law. 
Well, back at the start of the process, um, Emmanuel Macron, the president, said he would take the council's proposals, quote, without filter. Mm. Um, when the convention presented its proposals in June, Macron started out by rejecting three of them, um, 110 kilometer an hour speed limit on highways, um, a tax on company dividends, and um, changing the preamble of the constitution to include protection of the environment. But everything else, I mean, the vast majority are still being examined. And yet, in an interview with the online media Brut in December, Macron made waves when he answered a question about why he wasn't going fast enough on these proposals. J'ai 150 citoyens, je les respecte comme des parlementaires, mais je vais pas dire parce que ces 150 citoyens ont écrit un truc, c'est la Bible ou le Coran. So he says here, I respect the 150 citizens like MPs, but I will not say that just because 150 citizens wrote something that it's the Bible or the Quran. As you could hear, he was quite agitated mm, there at the idea that he, he wasn't doing enough with the proposals. I mean, during the conversation, he really got quite animated um, because he says laws are being made, discussions are being had. Um, Quentin Sauzet is the co-president of Démocratie Ouverte, Open Democracy. It's a group that helped organize the convention. Um, it's been around for a while. They've been promoting more citizen participation in France. But it really had its day in the sun with the Yellow Vest movement when all of a sudden, you know, the mainstream started paying attention to participative democracy. Yes, the Yellow Vest. Mm -hmm. As a reminder, that was a protest that started out against fuel taxes back in November 2018 and then developed into a more general movement of discontent content. There were weekly protests all over France for the following year, at least. Mm -hmm. And people were asking for more say in how things are decided in France, more direct democracy, as it were. Um, the Citizen Convention on Climate came out of this. In fact, Priscilla Ludowski, one of the initial activists in the Yellow Vest movement, is herself a member of the Démocratie Ouverte organization. Anyway, Quentin Sauzé um, pointed out to me that there's one last session of this Citizen Climate Convention that's coming up at the start of this year. Um, participants will see how the government has put in place their proposals, I guess a kind of post-mortem accountability session. Um, looking back on the process, he told me he was surprised at how much the convention participants wanted Parliament to actually be involved. They could have asked for referendums on a lot of measures, but they only asked for one, the changing of the first article of the Constitution to add environmental protection as a basic right. I have to admit I was very surprised because I thought that they would select their more, most radical measures and maybe the most powerful ones to referendum. And actually they've decided that they wanted to send them to the parliament because they were firm believers that those guys actually had a mandate from the people to decide. I mean, on a forbidding to sell or rent a house or a flat that was not renewed in terms of heat, that was not properly insulated. And you would have thought that kind of proposal would have been put to a referendum. Yeah, because I mean, it's so strong. I mean, it's affecting the property right of everybody. It's, it's, it's huge. And it was very interesting to see that regular citizens didn't want to bypass the parliament for this. In terms of changing the constitution, that's the, the, the only measure where they felt it could actually go to a referendum. Initially, when the president launched this, he said, I will take what comes out of this convention and I will apply it and it will eventually become part of French law. And of course, what we heard at the end of last year was uh, backtracking a bit. Macron said, just because 150 citizens have written this document, it doesn't make it the Bible or the Quran, yeah. which is yeah. quite strong words. Um, yeah. Were you surprised? No, not at all. I mean, I was actually surprised that it came so late. If, if you look back at how it happened, I mean, 
Really, let's not forget that this convention existed thanks to the Yellow Vest movement. If there were not the, the Yellow Vest movement, an executive power like the one we have in France would have never accepted to create such a convention and such a tool. The government and the president were scared. And that's why Macron had to take a high engagement and, and, and really try to uh, convince people that he was going to move. He uses this formula when he says, I'm going to take all those propositions and implement them without filter. And, and, and of course, I mean, this is completely ambiguous. So he has this convention and he says, I'm going to take it on. But then he doesn't. Yeah, exactly. The version of the president now is saying, I've taken those measures without filters and I've sent them either to the parliament or to uh, direct implementation through uh, government measures and stuff. So that's how he's at peace with what he said. And you have to look carefully at the different measures to see if the government has actually implemented them or not. And of course, that's going to take a bit of time. Yeah, and you, you can't imagine how the lobbies are battling now in order to destroy the measures. So the battle has just started, actually. On certain measures, uh, we've already lost. There was a tax to be implemented on heavy vehicles. And the French car manufacturers like PSA and Renault, they complained saying that they were going to be uh, really affected, heavily affected by this measure. I mean, this is a very specific example where lobbies have actually kind of gained the battle. But what's interesting is that it will still be uh, discussed in the parliament. I mean, it's in the political debate. And that was, I think, the very important part of it. And it's not over yet. And what's interesting is to see how the lobbies reacted to the Citizens' Convention, because at first uh, they were not taking it uh, very seriously. And you're saying the fact that now that they're reacting maybe to some extent with panic means that actually, wait, some of these things will actually go into place. Yeah, exactly. And, and actually, as we moved along, they started to realize that they had to take it very seriously because a lot of things will uh, be implemented. And that's the point of, of having this last session that we'll have in uh, January or February, is really to look at what the government has done and ask the people of the convention how you feel about what the government has done. There's a sort of um, accountability. Yeah, of course. And, and yeah, yeah, for me, that was the most important session because considering also the COVID crisis and stuff, the government could have easily said, OK, look, guys, uh, we'll try to do some, but... Uh, context is complicated. We're in the middle of a huge economic crisis with the COVID. Uh, thank you very much for your participation and that's all. So we are in a representative democracy here in France, but people feel there's a lack of representation to some extent. Why is there this feeling? I mean, if you look at the parliament, for example, you see that a lot of social uh, components of the society have completely disappeared. Yeah, in terms of just who's, who's elected, you mean? Yeah, the representation, yeah. The... Uh, less educated, uh, the poor workers. I mean, most of the, the MPs now in France are from the highest part of the society. It was not the case 30, 40 years ago. And so a lot of people don't feel represented. The way the French government system is set up, it almost seems as though it is not engaging people. Definitely at the national level, it's, it's still very vertical. And, and I would say the last version of the Fifth Republic is terrible. It's highly vertical and also the practice of our president 
I would say, is accelerating this uh, verticality. In a very sort of, as, as people call it, a regalian kind of president. Yeah, when he saw the last president having a lot of issues with uh, opposition in the parliament, and he thought, okay, the problem is that he's actually not concentrating enough power in his hands. Whereas we believe that he had so many problems because he was not taking the time to actually embark the people. And our belief is that we are now uh, living the last episode of this republic. Is the idea to get rid of the Fifth Republic and restart and rebuild the institutions in a different way? Yeah, of course, of course. The biggest problem we have in France now is that the executive body has way too much power compared to the parliament. And it's not balanced anymore. And people are really starting to realizing this. If you look back, I mean, 10 or 15 years ago, the idea of going to a, a sixth uh, republic was kind of crazy. And I think now the, uh, the, the way Macron is governing is helping actually a lot of people to realize that our, our institutions are tired. It will be part of most of the political programs for the next elections is how do we uh, adapt and change our institutions. That's interesting because Macron, from him, we got the national debate, the grand débat around the yellow vest. We've gotten the citizens convention. Recently, now we've heard about having citizens um, on a panel to advise on vaccines. Yeah, um, yeah. Where is this coming from? Is this Macron saying, OK, we'll, we'll let the citizens have their little conventions, but I'll continue on my way? <laughs> um, or is it actually a strategy to actually have more representation? Macron has this capacity to uh, think out of the box compared to I mean, our old politicians. But the issue is that he cannot fight <laughs> sufficiently with his other part uh, and his vision of verticality. He thinks that he's gaining time by deciding quickly and he's actually losing a lot of time because if you don't take the time to actually deliberate with uh, the population and stuff, you don't have a strong decision. It will be questioned, and especially in France where people, I mean, they love political debate and they want to be part of the decision and what's happening now with the vaccines is symptomatic of this way of governing the way uh, we have the information concerning the covid crisis we don't have a transparency concerning the figures and stuff and i think if you create shadow on information a lot of people on youtube on conspiracy uh, uh, theories and stuff will use that in order to push uh, fake news or that kind of stuff. So you're really saying there seems to be, it, it. they don't really know where they want to land on this. Yeah, because they've tried. I mean, they've tried the citizen convention. They're seeing that it's a pain uh, because, you see, citizens are not very engaged. They're asking for accountability. And, and so I think there's a battle inside the government concerning those tools. Those, those participative tools are like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. They can be either used on a very, we say in French, gadget way. Small toys that you give to people so that they think that they participate. But actually, it's a very vertical power. It's totally possible to use them in such a way. And this will create a lot of frustration because those participative tools are actually creating hope. And if you destroy this, it will definitely take democracy with it in, in its destruction. But definitely, I mean, that's the dark side of it. But the light side of it is really, I mean, those tools are here to help representative democracy to survive. And so this, this citizen convention for climate, is that 
being used in a Dr. Jekyll way or Mr. Hyde way? It's, it's, I think it's too early yet to answer. We'll be able to give a, a proper answer in the course of this year with how the parliament will actually implement this. And this panel for the vaccine? Yes, for now, I mean, we, we are still asking for information and stuff, but I mean, for what I've experienced so far, it's, it's, we're on the dark side of it. Eh? Either those tools will help to save democracy or they will actually accelerate uh, the collapse of liberal democracies. Because if people don't feel represented, you cannot embark people broadly. And that's the problem we are having now uh, with what they are trying to do with the, the vaccines. You have to use those tools very seriously. So that's it for Spotlight on France. If you liked this episode, we hope you did. Please do rate and review us on iTunes. You can find us on Instagram too, Spotlight on France. We post photos and videos to go along with the show. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani and we'll be back with a new episode in two weeks' time on January the 21st. Spotlight on France is a production of the English service of Radio France International. You can send us questions or comments, spotlight.france at rfi.fr, and previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye, Alison. Bye-bye, Sarah. Bye-bye, Sarah.